0: Good morning. Our scripture this morning is from Mark chapter 9, verses 2 through 29. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up a high mountain, where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wished, just as it is written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing with them about? He asked. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. When Jesus saw the crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said. I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, Why couldn't we drive it out? He replied, This kind can only come out by prayer. This is God's Word.
1: The uh, account of the Transfiguration is spectacular, very famous, of course, passage in the Bible. It's absolutely spectacular. But what does it actually mean? What are we supposed to learn from it? Just be impressed about it? No, I think we're supposed to learn quite a bit. And as I've thought about this this week, uh, and as I've thought about what Mark is trying to get across to us, I realize in some ways it's incredibly simple. For all its spectacle, it's incredibly simple, and yet something that we just desperately need to be reminded of all the time. Let's ask three questions of the text. What are we supposed to learn from the transfiguration? Why do we need to learn it? And how do we activate, access, use what we learn? What are we supposed to learn? Why do we need to learn it? And how do we access, activate what we learn from it? Okay, first, what do we learn from the transfiguration? And the answer is two astonishing things we're taught by the transfiguration. That Jesus is the object of worship and the secret of worship. First of all, he's the object of worship. Centuries ago, book of Exodus, Mount Sinai, God comes down on Mount Sinai. And you know what we see? A cloud. He comes down in a cloud. He speaks out of the cloud, the voice of God. There's, uh, 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 everyone is afraid, and so Moses goes to the top of the mountain, and up there he begs to see God's glory. He says, show me your glory, your, uh, your perfect, brilliant, bright, infinite greatness and unimaginable beauty and show me your glory. And God says, when my glory passes by, this is Exodus 33, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand till I have passed by, but my face cannot be seen. No one may look upon me and live. So he's not able to see, Moses is not able to see the glory of God. But even getting near, because of that, Moses' face shone with reflected glory, the reflected glory of God for a number of days. Now, centuries later, we're on top of another mountain. There's glory again, the dazzling brightness. It's not earthly glory, you see? You know, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. It's not earthly glory, so there's heavenly glory, there's a mountain, there's a cloud, there's a voice out of the cloud. We've even got Moses back. How much clearer could it be? So this is just Mount Sinai all over again? No. Because first of all, an astounding, there's an astounding difference. Moses reflected the glory of God like the moon reflects the light of the sun. But Jesus produces the glory of God. The glory of God emanates from him. He's the source of it. The unsurpassable and the the unapproachable glory of God comes from him. And what this means is that uh, Jesus does not point to the glory of God like Elijah, Moses, every other founder of every other religion, every other prophet. He does not point to the glory of God. He is the glory of God in human form astounding thing and so if uh, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 puts it like this he Jesus is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of God's being the exact representation that means it's the Jesus is the ultimate expression unsurpassable nothing higher possible the unsurpassable expression of the infinite overwhelming superlativeness and glory and beauty of God Jesus is the glory of God in human form. And, of course, that means, because, that means this. He is not just a teacher to follow. Oh, he is that, but he's infinitely more. Because of this kind of claim, because these claims all through the Bible, because he makes this kind of claim, Jesus has destroyed your middle ground. You know, many people have said this. I have said this. We'll say it again. He is not just a teacher to be followed, because if this claim is not true then you have to reject him as a megalomaniac. But if this claim is true, then you can't just follow him. You've got to center your entire life around him. You've got to make him the object of your soul's ultimate worship. The middle ground's gone. So he's the object of worship. But secondly, he's the secret of worship. And by that, I mean this. There's a second thing that happens here that never happened on on Mount Sinai. And it is absolutely astounding. The glory of God is the cloud. See, uh, when God came down on Mount Sinai, he came down on, as a cloud. It was called the Shekinah glory. Notice he speaks out of the cloud, which is that's his presence, is his raw presence. And that is what everyone has always said is fatal. When God said to uh, Moses, you may not look upon my face and live, what he was saying was that there's an infinite gap between deity and humanity. There's a chasm, there's a a gap in it between us. You can't take my reality, you can't take my holiness, you can't take my glory, it will destroy you. And this is the reason that Peter's scared. He is scared to death. And that's the reason why he says, now it says there, it says he was so scared he didn't know what he was saying. He's scared to death, but he says... Uh, Rabbi, let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. That is an absolutely inexplicable statement, unless you realize the word translated shelters here is actually the Greek word tabernacles. And when see, when God's glory came down on Mount Sinai, they built a tabernacle. Why? All religions, not just, not just the Bible, all religions have always understood that there's this infinite gap between deity and humanity. And therefore, all religions have had temples and tabernacles filled with priests and sacrifices and rites and rituals to obey and to transform your consciousness or to to take away your sins or something to mediate, to protect us, basically, from the presence of God, to mediate over this gap, right? And so what Peter is actually saying here is, I need something to protect us. We need a tabernacle, we need to set up, you know, sacrifices and things, you know, to protect us from the presence of God. And then immediately after that, something happens that if you would be reading the Bible all the way through, and who is whoever does that, if you were reading the Bible all the way through, it would shock you. Because we're told, then the cloud appeared and enveloped them. And the voice came from within the cloud. This is the Shekinah glory cloud. And said, this is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. And they didn't die. They didn't die. How could that be? And here's the answer. Suddenly, they looked around and they saw no longer anyone except Jesus. That's Mark's way of saying in the, in the strongest terms, Moses is gone, Elijah is gone. They saw nothing but Jesus. Jesus is not just the God on the other side of the gap. Jesus is the bridge over the gap. Jesus is the temple and tabernacle to end all temples and tabernacles. Because he is the sacrifice and priest that's end all, ended all sacrifices and priests. Through him, the beauty, the infinite beauty and glory of God can envelop you. Because see, when the cloud came down, it's not just they didn't die, it wasn't just non fatal, it was worship. They were surrounded by the brilliance of God. They were surrounded by the reality of God. They were embraced by it. And they heard the glory of God speaking of love, the, love of, of the father's love for the son, which is the gospel. And suddenly goes away. They've, they sense the reality of God. They see the reality of God. And suddenly it goes away, and they realize that Jesus is able to give what Elijah can't give, what Moses can't give, what no one else ever else could possibly deliver. Through Jesus, you can come into the very heart of the universe. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. See, worship is a foretaste of the thing that all of our hearts are longing for, whether we know it or not. We're longing for it in our art. We're longing for it. In, in, our, in romance, we're longing for it in the arms of our lovers. We're longing for it through family. But this is what he says. Lewis says in his famous sermon, The Weight of Glory, he says, We have a sense that in this universe we are strangers. The longing to be acknowledged, to meet with some response, to bridge some chasm that yawns between us and reality is part of our inconsolable secret. And surely, from this point of view, the promise of glory becomes highly relevant to our deepest desire. For glory means good report with God, acceptance by God, response, acknowledgement, and welcome into the heart of things. At present, we are on the outside, the wrong side of the door, but all the pages of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, God willing, we shall get in. The door on which we have been knocking all our lives will open at last. Apparently, then, our lifelong nostalgia, our longing to be reunited with something in the universe from which we now feel cut off, is no mere neurotic fancy, but the truest index of our real situation. Worship is not just believing. See, what happened to the disciples up there, they, didn't ju- they already believed in God. And, and, Paul, and Jesus, Peter had already said, you are the Christ, the Son of God, but they sensed it. They saw it. They were surrounded by the reality. The very presence of God enveloped them. And that is a foretaste of what Lewis says all of us are really looking for. Someday sitting, as it were, on God's lap, someday coming into his arms, someday being literally embraced by him and surrounded and enveloped by him and his love. Welcome into the heart of things, into the heart of the universe. Jesus is the secret. He's not just the object of our worship. He's the secret of our worship. So there. That's what we learn. Wow. How spectacular. But almost immediately, we see how practical this is. Because secondly, we see why we need to know this And uh, what I did, one of the reasons why the passage is so long, is what I've done today is not just, we're not just going to look at the passage on the transfiguration. We also want to look at what Mark puts immediately after the transfiguration, and I think it's because we're learning something here. The disciples have had a mountaintop experience. Hey, they've literally had a mountaintop experience. In fact, it could be that this is where we get the term mountaintop experience, I suppose. And as soon as they come off the mountain, they're plunged into confusion, evil. Here's a demon. And what's most interesting about what's happening here is, is the problems. There are people are arguing about it. There's the Pharisees. There's the teachers of the law in verse 14, and they're arguing. We don't even know what they're arguing about. And there's the disciples, and they're trying to exercise a demon, and it's not working. Not, this isn't Peter, James, and John who went up to the mountain transfiguration. This is the rest of the disciples. And in other words, they're surrounded by evil. Everybody's confused, and they don't have the ability to handle their challenges. So they come off this mountain, and immediately they're plunged into the situation. In fact, the same thing happens in the uh, book of Exodus, that when, when uh, Moses comes off the mountain, seeing God he immediately comes down into the camp, and there they are worshiping the golden calf. And this is the way for the biblical authors, this is the way for Mark to tell us something, and it's very important. The mountaintop experiences are episodic, and they're important. We're going to talk about why they're important. But basically, life is a journey to the cross. See, notice what Jesus says in verse 9 as they're coming off the mountain. He says, don't tell anybody about this till the resurrection. Why? Because until the resurrection, who in the world is going to believe it? What is the transfiguration then? It's a foretaste of the resurrection, a glimpse of it. It's a foretaste of, the, of the, uh, the second coming. But it's just a foretaste. It's just an episode. It happens. Life, though, is basically a journey to the cross. One long journey to Jerusalem where the Son of Man is going to, be, is going to suffer and die. Now, this isn't just a way for Mark to say that this was true of Jesus, that Jesus has this mountaintop experience, that Jesus experiences the love of God, which fortifies and empowers him for the horrible long journey to the cross. I'm sure that's true. But what Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, that's the truth for all of us. This is the lesson here. Life is a long journey, and Jesus says elsewhere, in this world you will have suffering. In this world you will have tribulations. In this world you will continually struggle with challenges that are beyond you that's life and that's the inevitable part inevitable part of life but as disciples and we push back on that completely do you see this this interesting conversation about elijah do you know what it's about do you remember how in chapter 8 when jesus first tells them i'm the messiah but i'm going to suffer and die and peter goes crazy he says, wait a minute, no, that's not the program. We go from strength to strength, and we, we put down our enemies. And he rebukes Jesus, and Jesus rebukes him. Now, Jesus, again, re- refers to his death, because he says, resurrection, which means he's referring to his death, of course. Now Peter pushes back again, <clears throat> but this time he's learned his lesson, so he's a little more cagey about it. And he says, well, why do the teachers of the law say that Elijah must come first? You know what he's saying? He's saying. In the book of Malachi, it's told that Elijah would return before the great day of the Lord. And the great day of the Lord was the time in which God would appear and make everything right. And they say, hey, we just saw Elijah up there. Elijah's here. Day of the Lord. Take over, Jesus. So what's up with all this suffering talk? You don't need to suffer. Elijah's here. Take over. And Jesus just lays them flat. What does Jesus say? He says, to be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. That Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it is written by him. You know what he's saying? He says, hey, the new Elijah was John the Baptist, and he has come, and he suffered and died. And I am the new Moses. And I'm not just going to lead the people out of uh, political bondage like the old Moses. I'm going to deliver from sin and death itself. But I have got to suffer. And so what he's saying to us, you know, when he says, oh, slow of heart to believe, oh, foolish generation, he's talking to me, I know. He's certainly talking to you. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to all of us. And he's saying, why isn't suffering in your program? Anytime suffering comes up, the idea that to follow me means you're going to have to suffer, you just freak out. In this world, you will have tribulations. And the only way I could come into this tribulational world and save it is to go through suffering to greatness. I'm here, says Jesus, going through suffering to greatness. And if you want to follow me, you will have to go through suffering to greatness. But every time you hear that there's suffering involved, every time I let suffering happen to you, every time it looks like being, following me means suffering, you freak out. You go, you go, you go nuts. You say, no, 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 you shouldn't be letting this happen. Why is God letting this happen? Why is God letting that happen? In this world, you will have tribulation no matter who you are. And there's only one question. Will that tribulation, will the suffering that you experience make you wiser, deeper, stronger, sweeter? Or will it make you bitter and hard and joyless? Will it drive you closer to God or away from God? Will it make you more compassionate about other people? Or is it going to make you harder, more cynical about human nature? In this world, you will have tribulations. You've got to see that, says Jesus. But there's a way of going through suffering to greatness. I am. And if you follow me, you will too. Well, then what is the key? What will keep the tribulations from turning you hard? What will make the tribulations be such that they turn you, like Jesus, into something great? And the answer is worship. See, if you come off the mount, remembering the reality, even though most of your time, most of your life, you don't see that. Most of your life, it's not all clear. Most of your life, it's, it's not all real. Most of your life, it's not all vivid. But it's worship. Basically, it's worship. The ability to know what the Father has done through the Son. The sense on your heart. Of that reality, even though it's episodic and you don't keep it all the time, that—if you have that—and then you come off the mount and you are—you go on the journey to the cross—that will turn you into something great, into into something instead of into something hard. This is way too easy a lesson in some ways, and when I looked at this, I have. I don't think I want to, and therefore, I guess I'm assuming that you don't want to either, admit that Jesus really says this. In this world, you will have tribulation. We think if we're savvy, we think if we're moral. See, the secular people of New York think, well, if really you have one problem after another problem, that's probably because you weren't smart. And Christian people think, well, if you're just having one problem after another problem, really, you're just not good. These sorts of things wouldn't happen if you were confessing all known sin and living according to biblical principles. And Jesus says, what greater principle, biblical principle is there than I took up a cross, you have to take up a cross. The world hated me, the world will hate you. I've had to suffer in order to get to greatness and resurrection, so will you. What greater principle could there be than that? And therefore, Jesus is saying, you have got to sometimes have access through worship to the very presence of God you have to be clear in your mind about my greatness and about what God has done and is doing through me you have to have four tastes of the resurrection you have four tastes of the second coming you have four tastes of the new heavens and new earth of that embrace that God is going to give you someday through me you have to have four tastes of that because this life your life is one long journey to the cross and if you have those four tastes and you're doing that journey to the cross it can make you into something great otherwise you will not make it That's point two. Point two. So that's what we (laughs) learn. That's why we need to learn it. Now, thirdly, how can we have access, then, to the presence of God through Jesus? How can we have these mountaintop experiences, as it were? How can we have this foretaste, even if it's episodic, even if it's, you you know, you come to worship, every time you worship, every time you come here and you sing God's praises and you pray to him and you confess your sins and so on, you're worshiping. But not every time do you experience what we're talking about here. How can you have access to that kind of presence of God? Three things we learned from the last incident in this passage, the famous and very interesting incident of the, uh, the man, the, son, the father, the son, and the demon. Let me summarize what actually happens in this. The disciples are trying to exercise a demon. But you know, you know what the last verse tells you? And it's pretty amazing. You know what the last verse of the whole passage tells you? They're trying to exercise this demon without praying. They're trying to exercise the demon without praying. How arrogant, how, uh, how clueless they are about the fact that they are inadequate to the evil and difficulties of the world. They just don't have the strength. I can't believe it. But they, they're trying to exercise the demon without prayer. Go figure. Verse 14, we see that the teachers of the law are there, and they're pontificating and arguing and probably telling them they're doing the wrong thing. Only one figure in this entire scene is acknowledging his weakness. Only one figure is acknowledging that he does not have what it takes to handle the suffering and difficulties and struggles that have been put in front of him. That's the father of the boy. And in a very memorable, one of the, I think one of the most important dialogues in all of the Bible, very memorable interchange, he says, would you heal my son? And what does Jesus say? I can if you believe. That's what he says. I can if you believe. And uh, everything is possible for him who believes. He doesn't use the word if, but it's, it's very clear. I can heal your son if you believe. And what does the father say? I'm riddled with doubts. He says, I believe help my unbelief, which means I'm trying, but I'm riddled with doubts. So Jesus says, if you believe, I'll heal your son. He says, I'm riddled with doubts," and then Jesus heals his son. What do we learn here? I think we learned three important things about accessing the presence of God. The first is very good news, I think. You're all gonna, it's gonna, very good news. Helplessness, not holiness, is the first step to accessing the presence of God helplessness, not holiness. Isn't this good news, everybody? Okay, class, what do you think? Good news? Helplessness, not holiness, (laughs) is the first step. Why doesn't Jesus, well, no, why doesn't Jesus, you know. Jesus does not say, I am the glory of God in human form. How dare you come before me with your doubts? Purify your heart. Confess all known sin. Get rid of all your doubts, you see. Get rid of your double-mindedness. Go away. And when you come back and you have really surrendered to me totally, and you've really, really, really worked all your doubts out of your heart, and you can come before me with a pure heart, then you can come before me and ask for uh, your healing and your blessing. It doesn't do that. Boy, not at all. Because Jesus is telling us by this, saving faith is not to say, I'm faithful, now bless me. See, when you say, I've lived a faithful life, now bless me, that's faith in you. That's being your own Savior and Lord. It's not faith in him. But to say, which is what the boy's father says is, I'm not faithful. I am riddled with doubts, and I cannot muster the strength necessary to meet my moral and spiritual challenges. But help me, that's saving faith. To say I don't have faith... I'm riddled with doubts, I'm not faithful, but help me. That's faith in Jesus instead of you. And Jesus says, when you say that, my power is released into your life. Because now, finally, you have faith in me. See, remember, remember, the, the absolute difference between the religions of the world and Christianity. Religion says, you give God a good record, then God owes you. Blessing. But Christianity says, God gives you, at infinite cost to himself, a perfect record through Jesus Christ, by grace. And then you live gladly for him. Absolutely different. Totally different. The one starts, religion starts by saying, look, I'm holy. I'm faithful. I've really summons up all my faith. I've gotten rid of all my doubts. Now you have to work in my life. I'm sorry. There are many branches of Christianity that talk like that. Oh, God will only bless me if I get it all together. Here's a man who says, I don't have faith. I'm I." I I'm, I have all my doubts, I, I don't have what it takes, but help me. And Jesus says, I can work with that. Because that is saving faith. It's a way of saying, accept me not because of what I am, but, but what you are. So isn't that good news? The first step is, the first step into the access to the presence of God is not holiness, it's helplessness. Okay, the second thing we learn here, though, is much more scary, okay? I just wanted to warn, wanted to warn you. If you want to be able to handle the journey of life, you've got to bring Jesus your precious things, your most precious things, even though it looks like he's going to make everything worse. You have to bring to Jesus your most precious things, even though it looks like he's going to make everything worse. Would you please notice what happens to this father? This father might have had other children. This father might have had a, a wife, you know. But I do know that when one of your children is a mess and is just, you know, uh, is melting down, it just it draws all of your emotional oxygen and metabolism. So at this point, I think what he is doing when he comes to Jesus and says, "Put and puts his son in Jesus' hands," he's giving Jesus the most precious thing in his life. And what is the first thing that Jesus does with him? Apparently, he gets worse. Before he was a deaf mute, now he's dead. You see that? The first thing that happens, so when Jesus begins to deal with the Father's precious thing, it looks like he's making everything worse. And I can't tell you how many times over the years as a pastor, I've had people say to me, you know, I gave my life to Christ, and my life has just been on a a downward spiral ever since. Everything has gone wrong. You see, here it takes only moments, only moments before it becomes clear what Jesus is really doing. In your life, it may not take just moments, it may take a lot longer time. But here's what I'd like you to consider. There's a lot of people in this, in this, uh, in this scene, but who is likely to be the, which people here are most likely to be sitting back saying, Jesus is not going to fail here? Who's the most likely person's Who are able to say, I don't know what he's doing, but I know, I know it'll be all right. Peter, James, and John, they were just on the mountain, and they saw the dazzling light. They saw Jesus' glory. They saw the reality. Now they're looking at him, and he's not, (laughs) there's no dazzle anymore, but they remember. See? They've held it in their hearts. And so everybody else has got to be freaking out. Certainly the Father's got to be freaking out. And they're sitting there saying... Wait. <laughs> you just wait. That is the secret. See, on the one hand, you have to give him your most precious things. Why is that so important, for getting through the journey of life? Why do you think Moses went to the mountain and said, give me your glory, show me your glory? Because Moses knew something that I guess most of us don't. Glory means weight. It means significance. Hmm? It means importance. And all of us are glory starved. All of us have a sense that all of us are fighting a sense that we're not important, that we've got nothing to offer, that, that we're, not, uh, you know, we're not making any dent. That, we're, that we're, All of us have a sense of our in, ephemeralness, our insignificance. And so we need people to love us. and we need, we need family. We need to help people. See, it's okay to help the poor. It's wonderful to, to raise your family. It's great to have a lover. It's great to do well in your uh, job and, and achieve something, you know, and really make a difference in this world. But if you're doing it to get glory to convince yourself you're okay. If, it's the, if any of these precious things are the ultimate source of your significance and security, then when things go wrong in life, and they will go wrong in life, and these things will be threatened or they even be taken away, you won't just be sad, which you should be. You won't just weep, which you ought to be. You won't be just you know hurt, which you should be. You will be despondent. You will be hopeless. You will, you, you will experience meaninglessness. You may kill yourself. Only if... Jesus isn't just somebody you know is important but you sometimes sense it see worship is like this it's one thing to be told someone is you may have be, t- been told that somebody is just beautiful and you believe it but when you actually see him or her up close you go oh, wow what happened do you get new information no but you had a sense of what you knew Or somebody says, oh, this restaurant, it's the greatest restaurant, it's unbelievable. So you, you believe it. You believe it's an incredible restaurant. You believe it's great. You believe what you're told. But if you actually go there and begin to eat it and you go, oh, my, now what happened? Did you get new information? No. You're experiencing it. You're having a sense of it. It's one thing to know God loves you. It's one thing to know that God, the glorious creator God of the universe, loves you, cares for you, holds you. It's another thing to sense it. If you know it and you don't sense it, then the other things in your life will be the things you look to functionally and really for your glory. But if Jesus really is someone who you've sometimes seen, sometimes felt, sometimes through worship really experienced uh, his ultimate reality, then and only then do these other things become things you can just enjoy and not just build your entire life on. And therefore, you'll never get through life you'll never give him your most precious things you'll never trust him during the hard times you'll never find that that uh, that suffering makes you wiser and deeper and stronger and sweeter instead of, you'll just find that it makes you harder and bitter unless you know how to trust him with your most precious things and you'll only trust him with your most precious things through worship okay third thing we learn here somebody's saying okay but how do you do that i mean what are you talking about here and here's what i think is the, probably the key when the cloud came down on the disciples, they heard God say to Jesus, You are my son. I love you. At the heart of the glory of God is the love of God for his son. And they're enveloped by it and they're surrounded by it. That is the ultimate experience. I mean, that's what C.S. Lewis was talking about when he says, What is glory? It means welcome into the heart of things, the applause, the approval, the acknowledgement of God. It's a lot. Okay, now on the cross, Jesus Christ does not call God Father, which he does every other single time. He says, "My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken me?" Look at that. On the mountain, he's surrounded by God. On the cross, he's he's forsaken. On the mountain, he's embraced. He's clothed with the love of God and the light of God. On the cross, he's naked in the dark. Why did he do that? In Romans chapter 8, verse 16, Paul makes a statement. It's one of the, one of my, one of the verses that's most consoled me and, and changed me over the years. He says, uh, the Spirit bears witness with our spirits sometimes that we are children of God. And what, here's what Paul is saying. Sometimes, through the Holy Spirit, you can hear God make this same statement of unconditional, permanent, intimate love. Sometimes you can actually hear. See, that's what the mountain of transfiguration means. It, it, figuration mean. That's what Paul's talking about in Romans 8. Our spirits bear witness. We're children of God. If you're a Christian, you give your life to Christ, you say, well, of course, I, I know God loves me and all that. But sometimes the spirit bears witness with our spirit. Sometimes we go to the mountain. Sometimes you don't just know about God's love, but you actually hear, you actually sense in your heart, God saying, you're my daughter. You're my son. I love you. I would go to infinite cost and infinite depths not to lose you, and I have. You say, I would love to have that experience. Well, watch this. If you see Jesus Christ losing the envelope and embrace of God's love, losing, as it were, his sonship from the mountain on the cross, and know that he's doing it for you, and know that he's done it for you, to the degree that moves you, To that degree, you'll begin to experience your own spirit of sonship. You will begin to hear this too. And sometimes it happens and sometimes it doesn't. But Jesus says, if you have accessed the presence of God through helplessness, not holiness, and if you have given me your most precious things, and if you see me losing everything, so you gain it losing, being surrounded by the love of God so you could have it, then sometimes you'll go to the mountain. And then when you come off the mountain, even though you won't see everything that clearly, you'll wait. You'll trust. You'll handle it. And it'll make you great. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this great, great promise that through Jesus Christ we can be enveloped with the beauty and power and love of heaven. And that though it's only a foretaste, it is a taste. And though it doesn't happen all the time, it happens. And without it, we cannot possibly face life as it will come to us. This is very, very important and very simple. And yet, Lord, it won't be enough for us just to uh, uh, believe the right things and go through the motions. We have to have a passionate spiritual experience of you we have to have a soul-satisfying sight of you in prayer, uh, in worship. Uh, we, uh, we cannot be people who simply go through the motions by any means. Uh, we ask that you would help us to appropriate this now, truly access the things that we are to learn through this great passage, the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. We want to hear in our souls, you are my son, you are my daughter, I love you. Let it be through Jesus. In his name we pray it. Amen.